Hello everyone. It's certainly a little strange to be preaching without seeing your faces, but I'm thankful we have the opportunity and the ability to still make God's Word known, even if for now we aren't able to meet together in person. These are strange times. The coronavirus has the country in its grip right now, and while it seems that the proper measures are being taken and it won't be as bad here, we pray as it is in other places, that hasn't necessarily calmed anybody's fears. As of the time I'm delivering this sermon or writing this sermon, as far as I know, there are still no confirmed cases of the virus here in West Virginia, and yet in the last 48 hours, I've been to the store personally five times, uh, trying to buy many of the things that are normal to buy, and none of them can be found. The coronavirus isn't in Marshall County yet, but the panic is. And uh, shelves are empty even here where people don't tend to panic in the experience that I have, where the people work very hard and family is very important. And or right, wrong, or indifferently, people are afraid. We don't really know what to expect. I certainly don't know what to make of all of it. I go back and forth between thinking that uh, it's all overblown and political sometimes to reading or hearing something that makes me think maybe this is something that is more serious than I think or needs to be taken more seriously. And Friday morning, though, when I personally saw the empty shelves and where the toilet paper should be in the Walmart here in Moundsville, I realized that the reality of the virus had made its way to our home, whether the virus itself technically had yet or not. That began to stir in my heart as your pastor. I began to think about how many people in our church are susceptible to the virus, uh, not through any mistakes or irresponsibility of their own, but just through their age or their health. And I've, as I've thought through that, I've seen so many of your faces in my mind over the last few days. And we made the decision to cancel our gatherings for now. We may still have to cancel more. We just don't know for sure yet. But I guess maybe that's the issue that as I've thought over these last few days has hit me the most is just this idea of uncertainty. And uh, we can only know so much. And I, I don't know if we should be so afraid or not just as a pastor. I know that people are afraid. We are largely reliant on the information we can receive from the outlets that we have to make our conclusions about what we'll believe or what can be known at all. Because the human race is a dependent race and we're not sovereign people. We have needs and limitations that make times of trouble and uncertainty especially difficult to go through. But our God is not dependent on anything or anyone, and our God is sovereign. And when the waves of this world and its fallen realities rise and throw us against the rocks, as Spurgeon said, they throw us against the rock of ages. I want to bring you a word of comfort this morning then, I hope, that is grounded in certainty. Not a word that ignores what we're going through right now or pretends that we aren't going through it. Not a word of arrogant presumption or in uh, time or government conspiracies or name it, claim it type nonsense, none of those things, but a word grounded in that which is eternal and unchanging and true, a word grounded in the greatness of the God that we worship together, a God who does not share our limitations or weaknesses, but also is not unconcerned about them. Our immovable hope is grounded deeply in our God, 
a God who does not faint or grow weary in his faithfulness to us, and whose understanding goes far beyond our every limitation as people in this world. <clears throat> this is a word of comfort, I hope, for the believer and for the unbeliever that may be watching with us also. I'm inviting you to come closer to him and to know him either more than you do right now or for the very first time as we face the ever-increasing uncertainty and limitations of being human, virus or not. So let me pray and we'll begin. Father, I thank you so much for the time that you've given to us, for this outlet, this ability to record and to post and to share your word. And Father, I hope that you'll help me to preach God in this environment. Please help me think clearly that your word may go out in truth by the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray for everyone that will watch and listen, that you would enable them, Father, to hear, to understand, and to believe. And I pray and ask these things with all of my heart in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. In Isaiah chapter 40, God pronounces comfort to his people. He prophesies of the day that her warfare will end and her sins will be forgiven, that the punishment that has fallen on her because of her rebellion against him has finally going to end and what will signify that great day is the sound of a voice crying in the wilderness saying that the Lord himself is about to arrive on the scene and his people's task is to prepare the way for him because his glory is about to be revealed. The great king from on high will arrive and all flesh will see it together. And then in verses 6 through 8 of Isaiah 40 it reads, all flesh that is, is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, and grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. The New Testament reveals to us that John the Baptist was the voice God sent to cry out in the wilderness, telling Israel that they have to prepare the way for the revival, the arrival of the Lord, for the promised time had Come, the coming of Jesus Christ was the arrival of the Lord Himself on the scene. And do you notice as you listen to that, the contrast here in these first verses of Isaiah 40 between the words of humans and the word of the Lord? Because the difference in those two words becomes the basis for describing the greatness of God altogether. People are like grass, and grass withers the book says it doesn't last. It's susceptible to wind and weather and footsteps and excavation, construction, animals, who knows what else. Flowers, they can be beautiful, right? They, they are beautiful. They smell good. They bring joy. People use them to communicate love and celebration, but they fade. Grass withers and flowers fade. They get plucked up, trampled, right? They need water and sunlight or they die, they can get hard and brittle regardless of their beauty, regardless of how they were once used to express somebody's feelings so well. God reveals that this is what people are like. People can be wonderful. They can be beautiful. We find people in our lives that we love, people that we would gladly lay down our lives for if need be, people we would do anything for to see them happy people we would fight for and defend, people we would help at the drop of a hat if they needed us, people build things, people help advance technology and science and 
establish infrastructures and cultures and medicine and transportation and all these wonderful, amazing things. But the reality is we are not immune to decay and we are not permanent. And even the healthiest and most careful and responsible of us wither away eventually. Some are taken away quickly, awfully, unexpectedly. Some are taken over time as their bodies decay and break down, but the pain of loss is something all humans know all too well, unfortunately. We're all faced every day with the reality that we can't stop the passage of time. We can't live forever. We don't last forever. And even some of the best and strongest relationships that we make can crumble. Even our best inventions, the best things we've ever done, end up not being enough. And then on top of all that, we're plagued by sin and shortcomings and failure and doubt and trials and difficulties. And then one strand of a new virus is discovered that we haven't developed a vaccine for. If, if the least little bit of genuine trouble is introduced into our lives, even the strongest things we know and rely on can begin to break down almost overnight. We know so much, but we don't know enough. We are so strong, but we aren't strong enough to deal with what is beyond our ability to face. But what the text of Isaiah reveals, and then in what Mark 1 will come to say is the beginning of the gospel, however, is that there is something that stands forever. There is something that will never fail. There is something that cannot be undone. There is something that doesn't wither. There's something that doesn't fade, that isn't susceptible to decay or infection or ignorance or inability. The Word of our God. There are things about God that stand ultimate, that are irrevocable above everything else. And it's this, this unending power of God that is the basis of hope for human beings. And not just in the midst of sin and our need for salvation, but also in weakness and uncertainty and our need for divine intervention. And that is gospel. God wrote these words. Listen to Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Do you hear in the text how the might of the Lord, the thickness of His arms, so to speak, and the truth of His power are not employed here to give fear, but to bring comfort to His people. These great, sovereign, majestic, pure, divine arms will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Here the image is so kind. The God with sovereign power over the universe to bring recompense on those who have rebelled against Him and refused to believe in Him and worship Him is just as ferocious in that 
recompense as he is in the gentle care for his little lambs. This is a promise of what God is for us in Jesus Christ ultimately through the gospel. The good news ultimately for all mankind is that this God is not just a powerful, sovereign, perfect judge. He's a gentle, loving, comforting Savior. And if He is both, if God is both of those things, if all salvation and all justice are in His hands, then we can live knowing, we don't ever have to be afraid that justice will somehow not ever be served, nor do we ever have to be afraid that somehow there won't be enough grace and forgiveness for our sins and our weaknesses. God makes all things whole. God will make everything right. Everything. And when He comes to lead us, He doesn't do it by beating us over the head, but by treating us gently like little sheep. No wonder then that when Jesus came, He promised us things like His yoke is easy and His burden is light. His shepherding hand means that He knows us. He knows us by name and He will never lose us. Never throw us out. And nobody can take us out of His hand. God comes to us in Christ to save us and lead us to address the deepest need of our souls, which ultimately has nothing to do with our health or wealth or any of those things. And it isn't that God doesn't care about our daily lives or the things that we struggle with. He most certainly does. The point is that God is not merely addressing the needs of the moment for us, but the need of eternity in the way that He deals with us. Listen to what He's like. Listen to verses 12 through 17 of this passage. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclose the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. There is nothing God doesn't know. There is nothing God doesn't see or understand. There's no limit to his power. He's not waiting to find anything out. There's no end to the width of His rule. There's no material or immaterial element over which God is not sovereign or does not control. God is dependent on no one to know anything, to learn anything, to understand anything, to make judgments about anything, or to rule over everything. God is the ultimate truth in all known and unknown reality. The judgments and authority and schemes and decisions and policies and wars of all the nations together throughout history, past, present, and to come, are things he observes and rules over, that he can turn wherever he will and wherever he wills, that cannot, despite all their effort to do so, shake themselves free from his existence or his authority. And it's not only true that God reigns over all these nations, and in that sense, compared to Him, they are nothing, they're no threat to Him, they have 
no authority, no control over him. It is that nothing that happens inside of them is greater than he is. Nothing. Nothing that comes into being that could mutate into being, that develops into being, be it a nation or a human or a scheme or a war or a cell or a virus goes beyond the scope of his knowledge, his power, or his rule. From the biggest, most visible things to the tiniest, literally invisible things, he rules in complete sovereignty over every ounce of it, all the time. There is nothing then, and no one, that is like God. We worship Him, we sing songs, we pray, we preach, and these are all good, right things to do. But at the end of the day, we have no concept of the majesty, the utter majesty we're dealing with here. Listen to verse 18 through 20. Notice how it flows right out of all that bigness and greatness of God. The next word is, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Humans create their gods. They make them. Sometimes literally, right? Especially in times when the prophet Isaiah would have been writing, gods were literally crafted by craftsmen. Wood, maybe gold, silver, these kinds of things. But they found skilled craftsmen who could make figures for them to worship. There are parts of the world where this thing still would go on. But in our day, or in our culture, that's less acceptable, less normal. Because we, we are in some ways so much more advanced that building an idol would seem a silly thing to do, but we still make them and worship them. Just now, we look at them in our phones and take pictures of our faces and doctor them to get likes and worship approval of ourselves. We worship what money can buy us, don't we? We worship nature. We worship bodies. We worship security. We worship things that wither and fade as though they are God because we are so hungry for something magnificent and transcendent that can give us hope and give us meaning and maybe give us life, make us ignore all these limitations we have. But the tragedy is that nothing we make can go beyond our limitations, right? We're always limited by what we can know in what we make. God can't even be put into a human category. What is there in all of creation that you could say, God is like that? Now, you, you can do those things to help maybe children understand or people understand concepts about Him, but they all fall short, right? That there, there is no category for God. God is outside and yet with us. We don't have any class or standard that can accurately describe everything that He is to the point where we wouldn't have to make any qualifications or nuance it at all. The best and most important things that we create could by definition not be our creator. We just call them God. 
Listen to verses 21 to 26. He says, Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Lord, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Look up. Who created these? Who brings out, he who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. God sits so high above the earth that even the greatest and the best of us look like grasshoppers to Him. Have you ever tried to grasp with your mind the expanse of space? Have you ever tried to count the stars? God named every single one of them. We can't even count them. We are subject to rulers in our lives we don't want to be and didn't ask to be. We have to follow laws sometimes that we don't agree with, had nothing to do with creating. People are often thrown into war or conflict or poverty when it has nothing to do with their vote or their will or their decision. These are things for which we are responsible. There are things for which we are responsible that we had no say-so in whatsoever. And in days like these, in days like these, when something like a virus arises, not only are we dependent upon a new vaccine or our own habits to keep from getting it, we are also now the victims of how fast other people can get to the store before we do. What a government does or does not do to contain it, we're subject to that. We're subject now to other people's travel habits. While God makes Names, counts, and directs stars. When the foundations of your life begin to shake, when you're overwhelmed inside by fear and doubt and uncertainty, go out in the middle of the night, somewhere where it's quiet and clear and really dark, and look up. Someone made everything you can see by talking. And he is our shepherd. This is the God that proclaims to the world, look to me and I will forgive you. Look to me and I will pardon you. Look to me and I will wash away all that you've done and I'll give you a new name. God is in the business of giving names to what he creates. It is in the very moment of our deepest need, in the very height of our uncertainty, when we are most sure that we're alone and forgotten and on our own, that God speaks like this. Listen to the last words of this chapter in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. 
He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We will always try to find reasons to say, God, where are you? Or, uh, God, are you there at all? Do you even exist? Can you see? Do you know what's going on? Or what are you going to do? What should I do right now? But we never actually have a reason to say or think that God has turned His back. That He isn't there. That He doesn't see. That He's unaware of what's going on. That He doesn't know what to do. That He can't do anything. Or that He's left everything in our hands to take care of. Look at the sky, God says. The sky is always there. The majesty is always there. Look at the chemistry and biology of the human body. Consider the expanse of the human mind, the expanse of space, the depths of the oceans, the height of the mountains, the beauty in a song or in a poem or a flower or a painting. And know that God is so great that all of these things exist in the palm of His hand. He is the Lord the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, and he does not faint or grow weary, and his understanding is unsearchable. God doesn't run out of anything. God is not limited by anything. Nothing can occur that will outlast or outrun him. We can't even fathom the work that God is doing in our world, even now in the midst of this virus, which is a surprise to us. It's a mystery to us. What we know for sure is that we're limited by our lack of knowledge. Or even the simple inability to get to the store before somebody else, like we said earlier. We could forget to wash our hands at the crucial moment or touch our face at the wrong time. And maybe none of those things get us, but eventually age will get us, if nothing else does. But the God who sent His Son to redeem us, He gives power to the faint. God transcends the reality of this fallen world in Isaiah 40 with the truth of the gospel. With the arrival of Jesus Christ promised to us in Isaiah 40, God revealed Himself. And God has made it clear that His answer to everything that threatens us is the promise and the presence of His forgiveness, His love, His tender care, and His power. So we wait for Him. But not as though He may not come. We don't wait for God in the sense of waiting to see if He will come. We only wait for when He will come. The coming of Jesus for us is the only true certainty we have. Where we end, where we stop, where our weaknesses and inabilities keep us from being able to control our own destinies, God is just in the whispers of getting started. And that will hold true for you who believe in Him, whether you live or whether you die. Whether we get sick or whether we stay well, God will not leave or forsake His people. Everyone gets exhausted. 
Everyone reaches the place where we throw in the towel, even young people with the whole world in front of them. But those who wait for the Lord, regardless of their age, Isaiah 40's promise to us that in the arrival of His Son to forgive sinners and give them life and pardon is also the promise of His tender, caring presence that will so wrap up our souls in His power and love that we will mount up with wings like eagles. We will run and not grow weary. We will walk and not faint. Does that mean we'll never get sick? Does that mean we'll never fall victim to something? Does that mean we'll never have to deal with troubles? Does it mean that we may never one day just fall victim to our age or to things we can't control and have no say over? No. But it does mean something like the opposite. It means that regardless of what we deal with, regardless of our physical health, regardless of the state of the world, He will not forget us. He will not leave us to ourselves. He will not leave us to our own strength or ability. Because the only thing we are dependent on in order to mount up with wings like eagles is the promise of a word that will stand forever. The promise of a God who never ends. And His promise, no person, no plan, no circumstance, no sickness, no uncertainty can ever take away. Our immovable hope is grounded deeply all the way down in our God. A God who doesn't faint or grow weary in His faithfulness to us and whose understanding goes far beyond our every limitation as people in this world. Let me pray. Father, thank You so much for the promise of Your Word. God, thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior and Shepherd of His people. Lord, I pray for our community here in the Ohio Valley. I pray for every town and every church and every family and every child, every middle-aged person, every elderly person. Father, we lift them all up to you, asking, Lord, for your protection and your care. Lord, provide what is needed for everyone. I ask of you, Lord, in your mercy, for you are kind even to the ungrateful and the evil among us. Lord, would you be kind to the valley? Would you remember us? And Lord, would you bring many people to salvation, to assurance, to hope, to comfort through the word of your Son, Jesus Christ, promised and delivered to us in the gospel that holds true no matter what we're going through or where we are. Father, we place ourselves at your feet and we trust in you. For you will always keep every single one of your promises in your Son, Jesus Christ. And we ask and pray in his name. Amen. God bless you.